Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We are glad that you are here this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to be with you. Uh, I'm glad that you're, you're joining us, whether this is your first Sunday, Sunday or your hundredth Sunday, we are glad that you're with us because the truth is, is that every single one of us, uh, those who have been walking with Jesus for 50 plus years, to those who have just started walking with Jesus, to those who, who maybe haven't, are just exploring the claims of Jesus, what, what we all have in common is that we are all in need of God's grace and mercy. And so it's good for us to be here because it is in God's word that we hear about his grace. It is in God's word that we hear about his love and his care, not just for, not just for uh, those outside these walls, but for us as well, for me and for you. And so it's great to be with you. And this morning, as we uh, explore God's word, as we examine it, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 2. So if you have a copy of God's word, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 2. There's also a Bible in the chair in front of you. You can find our passage on page 808 of Matthew chapter 2. And this is the uh, last Sunday in, uh, in our series, our Advent series, because this is the fourth Sunday of the season of Advent. Christmas Eve is the uh, beginning, or Christmas morning is the beginning of the Christmas season. And so we conclude our Advent series this morning. And we're doing so by concluding the last uh, half of Matthew chapter 2. And if you were here with us last week, you know that the narrative has already told us that Jesus has been born. He's been worshipped. He has been adored. The nations have come and gathered and celebrated that the Messiah has come. The nations through these wise men. They have bestowed upon him gifts and they have bowed before him. And yet even though this Messiah has come, Jesus has been born and he has been worshipped, we see in our passage this morning, the one that we're about to read, that that though he has been worshipped, his life is now threatened. That though he has been celebrated, there are those who are wanting to destroy him. And even though he and his mother and father are in danger, even though there are those who are breathing threats against him, there is still hope. There is hope. Hope for those who would look to this one whose life would be threatened. Hope. For, this, for those who would look to this one who has been born. And so let's go ahead and read Matthew 2. We'll begin in verse 13. Now when they, being the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they, were, they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. 
saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this portion of your word. And we ask that as we come to it, as we examine it, as we read from it, that you would open our eyes. For God, we need you to, to work and move. We need you to change us because we are all in need of change. To come in greater conformity with your word and your will. And so we ask that you would help us this morning. Help me so my words would be the proclamation of your word. Help us all so that the meditations of our hearts, our hearing, would honor you. For you are our God and our King, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week after we were leaving church, as we were driving home, in my car it was me and Mead, my daughter, one of my daughters, and Cole and Machen were in the back. Machen's not one of my kids. Uh, he was coming along, and, and so Machen and Cole were in the back. They were talking about all the things these two little boys were going to do at our house. They were going to play ping pong and maybe, you know, play with axes and other things that little boys do. <laughs> you laugh, but that's actually what they do. <laughs> um, uh, they were talking about all those sorts of things, and so Mead and I, you know, were we're not talking about axes and ping pong, and so we're, we're scanning through the radio, the preset stations, trying to find a, a song, a station for us to listen to, and we, we found the station we were looking for, and there was no music, there was just the tail end of a commercial. And I have no recollection, we didn't hear what the commercial was actually about, or who produced it, or what product it was trying to sell, but what we heard was the very end of the commercial, and it said this, the holidays aren't supposed to be hard. I thought that was very interesting, so I turned the volume down, and I look over at Mead, and I said, Mead, why do you think they said that? The holidays aren't supposed to be hard. Mead, what do you think they're implying by that? What do you think they're trying to get at? Why would they say the holidays aren't supposed to be hard? And so Mead, my little 10-year-old, she kind of you know, screws up her face a little bit in thought and ponders and looks out the window to think a little bit about what this might mean. And she goes, well, well, maybe they said this because sometimes the holidays are hard. It's like, man, that, that's pretty insightful, isn't it? I mean, my girl is wicked smart, <laughs> right? That was very insightful. And I th said, me, that, that's exactly right. Because that is the very truth, isn't it? That, that sometimes the holidays are hard, and they're not just hard, they're, they're very hard, they're very difficult. Sometimes the holidays are some of the worst times of the year. They're filled with sadness and mourning and darkness. But they're not supposed to be that way, right? We know that. We feel this strange disconnect, don't we, during this season? The, the streets, our streets are lined with lights in the middle of the night, but but there's still the dark. In fact, the night is longer, and the nights are colder, and the day is shorter, right? On the one hand, we, we have songs of joy on our lips, but on the other, we have heaviness in our hearts. We have the desire to give gifts to others, but we feel this burden to give just the right gift. 
we have this growing anticipation, but sometimes we're really just anticipating it all being done. And so we actually start to resonate with Charlie Brown when he said in the Christmas special, I think there must be something wrong with me because Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. Do y'all resonate with that? Maybe not this year, maybe not today, but I think every one of us has experienced that before, haven't we? Because it is in this season that we start to feel the loss of those that we have loved. It's in this season that we, we feel the disconnect with family members that we're supposed to be connected to. It's often in this season that we feel that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And I imagine if you're like me, that that can actually make you feel very guilty. It can make you feel guilty because this is the season when we're only supposed to feel joy and we're only supposed to be happy and there's only supposed to be light. But yet there's still dark. There's still sadness. I mean, even in, in our passage, if we would read Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1, if we had time, I, I would love for us to read verse 1 all the way through the end. In fact, I'd encourage you to do that maybe later today or this week. And as you do that, you would feel this strange dissonance that takes place because we have celebration, we have joy, we have adoration, we have giving of gifts, and then we have the one who has been adored fleeing for his life. We have the one who has been celebrated having to go off to a foreign country. We have threats being breathed out against the author of life. That the light has come into the world and yet the darkness of Herod is trying to overcome it. Jesus himself experienced the tension that many of us experience in this season. That though our lives are not in danger as Jesus's was, we, we know the darkness. You know it, and I know it. So let me just say, before we go any further, let me just say that, that it's okay for you not to be okay at Christmas. Okay? Just relieve yourself of that. It is okay for you not to be okay at Christmas. It is okay if in the midst of celebrating, you need to mourn. And it is okay if in the midst of rejoicing, you need quiet. And in, if in the midst of parties, you simply need rest. Because, friends, we live still in a world that has darkness. The light has come. That is what we have been told in John 1, that the light has come into this world and the darkness shall not overcome it. And yet, there is still dark. The light wins. The darkness will not invade, but the darkness still needs to be pushed against. It still needs to be resisted. So what do we do with that? As the darkness is still present, as we still experience the heavy and the weighty and the sad, what do we do? How do we live with that? Do we just fake it? <laughs> Put on a smile? Everything's fine? No, that is not how we live. The way we live is with hope. That is what we do, that in the midst of sadness, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of grief, we live with hope. Hope, that's what we see in this passage. Now, I imagine that many of us, as we are reading through it, as you are listening or following along, that was probably not the first thing that went through your mind, right? As, as we see Jesus fleeing for his life and in Herod's rage leading to murder and the holy family having to wait for it to be safe to return home. 
And yet, even in those times, there is hope. Hope, because as these events unfold, what we're going to see is that the early days of Jesus' life actually mirrored many of the events of Israel, of the people of God. And it's showing us that Jesus is the true Israel, that he is the better Israel. That's a theme throughout the book of Matthew, that Jesus succeeds where Israel failed, and that Jesus is what Israel was supposed to be. And so as Matthew brings and invokes these three prophetic words, what he is doing is telling us that Jesus is the one that we put our hope in. He's showing us who Jesus is and why we can hope, even in the midst of the dark. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these three prophetic words and see how they show us we can hope. And the first one tells us that we hope because we hope in the one who will deliver us. We see this in the first of the prophetic words. The wise men have departed. They've left. They've worshiped Jesus, but they've gone on their way. They've returned home. And the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and says that Herod is ready to kill Jesus. And so they need to flee to Egypt until the threat subsides. And then we read in verse 15, Matthew says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is a direct quote from Hosea chapter 11, Hosea 11, 1. And before we look at Hosea 1 or consider it, we have to say something about what is prophetic fulfillment. Because when we hear prophecy, when we hear this was to fulfill the prophet, our immediate thoughts run to this is a direct promise, a direct prophecy with a direct fulfillment. So a prophet says this is going to happen into the future, and it happens. Okay, an example of this is Isaiah chapter 7 with Matthew chapter 1, when we read that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah said that there will be a Messiah who will come, and he will be born of the virgin, of a virgin. And when Matthew sees that, that Jesus has been conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, He says, look, this is the promise coming to fulfillment. It is a direct promise with a direct fulfillment. However, that's not how promise and fulfillment always work. That's not how prophecy always works. Because sometimes fulfillment takes place through typology or analogy. And that's what we have with Hosea. Because in Hosea 11.1, the prophet Hosea isn't actually looking to the future. He's looking to the past. He's looking to the past and he's talking about the Exodus and about how God delivered his people out of Egypt and and brought them out of slavery. And he freed them and rescued them. He brought his son, Israel. That's why Israel is referred to oftentimes in the Old Testament as God's son. And so when Matthew invokes this prophecy, invokes Hosea, and applies it to Jesus, what he is telling us is that Jesus is the better Israel. That Jesus is God's great son. That through Jesus' life, what we have taking place is a new exodus. That just as God delivered his people out of Egypt and led them by Moses, now a greater deliverer has come. A greater deliverance has arrived. Because through Jesus, God's great son, 
we are delivered not from a slavery to foreign nations, but we are delivered from the slavery to sin. And friends, that's why we can have hope. That is why we can have hope, because Jesus, God's great son, whose life is this new exodus, he delivers us. He frees us. But that's not the only reason for our hope. It's not just for this prophetic word that tells us he will be the one who delivers us, but also because he is the one who will comfort us. So the narrative picks up again. The, the wise men, they get wind of what Herod wants to do, and so they don't go back to Herod to tell him where the, the baby is. They go back home. And Herod realized he's been duped, and so the wise men are not returning. And so in his rage, we read in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. Now, the region of Bethlehem wasn't very big. It wasn't very large. And so most scholars think that, that there was probably about 20 children, 20 boys that were killed. And so it wasn't hundreds or thousands, but, but regardless, what Herod had done was wicked. And it was evil. And it was heinous. And Matthew tells us that the response to this wicked deed is fulfilled by the prophet I, uh, Jeremiah. He says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. So Matthew is now quoting from Jeremiah 31. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31. And in Jeremiah 31, the context now isn't that the people are in, the ex or are in Egypt and awaiting the exodus. Now they are in exile. So they're in another foreign land, under another foreign king. They are far from home. And so the people lament. They cry out. But what's fascinating about Jeremiah 31 is that the whole of the chapter is actually a chapter of rejoicing. It's a chapter of hope. Of the 40 verses of Jeremiah 31, there is one verse of grief and sorrow, and it's the one that Matthew quotes. There is grief because, the, because God's people are in exile. There is sorrow because some of the children of Israel will not return home. And they have been lost. And yet, in the midst of that grief, there is hope. I mean, just listen. I'm, I'm going to read portions from Jeremiah 31. And I want you to hear how God comforts his people. That as they grieve, God responds to their cries and their grief by saying to them, you, my people, shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, and your children shall come back to their own country. The Lord says that the grief and the mourning that they experience, it will not be the last sounds of the people, because he says once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. God declares there is going to be hope because he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He declares that there will be hope because he says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people for I for will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see, Jeremiah 31 is a word of comfort to God's people in the midst of their grief. 
And God comforts them when they mourn and when they grieve. He comforts them with hope. Now listen, God isn't saying that mourning is wrong. He's not saying that it is wrong to grieve. In fact, the Bible is very clear that mourning and sadness and lament and weeping is the right response to evil and wickedness and sin. But what the Bible is teaching us, what Jeremiah is telling us, is that that even as we mourn, we do so with hope. Hope because the comfort promised in Jeremiah 31 has come. You see, as Matthew applies this to Jesus, he's telling us that Jesus is our comfort. That there is weeping and there is loud lamentation. But there is hope because the comforter who will establish the covenant that God has promised with his people, Jesus, he has come. And he will comfort us by drawing near in the midst of grief. And Jesus can comfort us because he has actually experienced our griefs. He has experienced our sadness. I mean, he experienced it even as an infant, as a child. Right? He had to live in a foreign land like the people in exile. He, he, had, to, he had to endure the, the threats against his life. He experienced this brokenness of this world. He witnessed evil and he fled. And he even has been tempted as we have, and yet without sin. And so because Jesus knows our discomfort, because he knows our grief, and he knows our sorrows, he can comfort us. And he does comfort us in ways that no one else can. He comforts us by wiping away every tear. You see, that is the beautiful promise that we're told in Revelation. That when Jesus will return in his second advent, that the comfort that Jesus begins in his coming will come in full at his second coming. When he will return and we will dwell with God and the promise of Jeremiah 31 will come in full because we will be with our God and he will be our God and we will be with and he we will be his people and we will dwell with him for all eternity. And we are told that Jesus, our comforter, will wipe away every tear. All of our mourning, it will be no more. All of our grief, it will be done away with. That the one who came will come again and grief will be no more. Jesus will wipe away every tear because we will be with our comforter. And so friends, in the midst of mourning and lament, we hope. In fact, I would say that lament is a cry of hope. Because true lament is, is crying out to the God who can actually help. It is saying things are not right, things are not good, things are not the way they should be or are supposed to be. And so we cry out to the one who can change it, who can comfort us. We hope because our comforter has come, but we also hope because the one who has come is the one who has humbled himself for us. It's the last of the prophetic words. The story continues, Joseph and the family, they leave Egypt And they start to return to Israel. But as they approach their hometown, as they approach the land, they get word that though Herod isn't reigning, his son Archelaus is. So historically what has happened is that Herod has died. 
and Rome instead of putting one of his sons as the king, the, the, the regent over the entire people of Israel. He breaks up Israel into, Rome breaks up Israel into three different regions and assigns each one of Herod's king, sons over these regions. And so that's where we get Herod Antipas later in the Gospels. That's one of Herod's sons. He's over the region of Galilee. And we get now Archelaus, who is one of Herod's sons over the region of Judea. And what we know about Archelaus is that he is a chip off the old block. He is wicked and heinous and evil. In fact, he is so evil that Rome didn't even wait for his death to replace him. They removed him and replaced him with prefects, of which this is where Pontius Pilate comes. But for now, the threat is still there. Joseph is warned to change his plans and to head to Galilee and to live in Nazareth. And we're told in verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, what's interesting about this prophecy, what's fascinating about it, is that if we were to search the entirety of the Old Testament, if we were to read through every single verse and every single word, we would not find this prophecy. In fact, if you go and you search for the word Nazareth or Nazarene, it's not in the Old Testament. Those words are not there. And that's some of the reason why they're not there is because in the Old Testament times, there was no town called Nazareth. It didn't exist yet. So we have to wonder, like, what, what is Matthew getting at? It's fulfilled what the prophet said, he shall be a Nazarene, but there's no prophets who are saying this. And so there's a few ways that we can handle this. One of the ways is that uh, some people want to say that, that Matthew is invoking the Nazarite vow of Samson from Judges. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. I don't think that's the right interpretation here. Another way of understanding it is maybe this is a wordplay off of a Greek and a Hebrew word, and, and maybe that's what Matthew's doing. And, and though that's enticing, especially if you like language, I, I don't think that's what's happening here either. And I don't have a lot of time, I don't have the time to go into those. So if you want to know the reasons why those aren't the right interpretations, I'll be happy to share those with you at another time. But what I think is happening here is actually that Matthew is picking up on not a single prophecy, but a theme that is shown throughout the prophets. In fact, what's fascinating about this passage, if you'll note, he said to fulfill the prophet, singular, and then he quoted directly from Hosea. And then with Jeremiah, he said to fulfill the prophet Jeremiah, and then he quoted directly from Jeremiah. But here, notice what he says, by the prophets, plural. And then he doesn't quote any prophet. And so what I think is happening is that Matthew is picking up on the theme, a theme, that shows up throughout many prophets. The theme that the Messiah, the Messiah would come out of obscurity. That the Messiah would be one who comes being ignored by his people. That the Messiah, in fact, some of the prophets actually say that he will just simply kind of appear and no one will know where he came from. That he will come out of humility and with humility. In fact, we see this theme showing up in Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, just to name three that the prophets actually expect that the Messiah would come with these humble beginnings from a place like Nazareth, a forgotten and obscure place. In fact, do you, do you remember what was said about Nazareth? 
So Philip, he hears that Jesus has come. He's heard the teaching of Jesus, and he goes to Nathanael, and he says, the one to whom, about whom uh, Moses and the law and the prophets spoke, he has come. He has arrived. The Messiah is here. Jesus of Nazareth. And do you remember what Nathanael said? What good can come out of Nazareth? Right? Like there is snark and there is sarcasm. This is the first century equivalent of OK Boomer. <laughs> That's what this is. He's like, there's nothing good that can come out of Nazareth. There's nothing good that can come out of this place because it is forgotten and it is obscure and it is minuscule. They wouldn't have expected the Messiah to come from that place. And yet the one who is promised, who has come, he came not from an earthly palace or a place of prestige or a place of notoriety. He came with humble beginnings and so fulfilled the words of the prophets. He came out of obscurity. And what's amazing about Jesus is that his humility didn't end with his birth or from the town in which he resided. His humility continues throughout his life and it goes all the way to the cross. Because the child who fled to Egypt and whose life was protected, he came out of a humble town. This is the same child who gave his life in humility. For that's what we're told in Philippians chapter 2 when the Apostle Paul says that Jesus did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on flesh and humbled himself to the point of obedience, obedience even on the cross. You see, Jesus humbles himself by going to the cross so that our sins would be forgiven. That your sins would be forgiven. That mine would be. Friends, that is the amazing thing about Christ's coming. That the king of glory, we read it, didn't we? We, we read it aloud. We said it aloud in our time of confession that he left the place where angels adored him. He left the place where he was worshipped and glorified. He left his rightful place in heaven. And he humbled himself by taking on flesh and dwelling amongst men and dying so that we would live. So that we would be comforted in our grief. So that we would be delivered from our iniquities. You see, friends, he is the reason why when our days are full of light and of joy and when our days are sad and dark, that we hope. And so if you come this morning, if you walked in those doors rejoicing, or maybe you came mourning, or if you're going to leave this place, you're going to leave those doors, and you're going to leave with song or with sadness, regardless of how you have come or how you leave, let us come and go with hope. Hope because the one who has been promised has been born. Hope because the one who was born has lived. Hope because the one who lived has died and risen again. Hope because he has humbled himself for us to deliver us, to comfort us. And so people of God, this Advent season, this Christmas season, in all of our days, let us hope. Amen. Our Father, we do thank you for the grace that you showed to us. We thank you that you sent our Lord Jesus, your Son, to live, to be born in a humble manger to a virgin woman, to a carpenter father. Father, we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, humbled yourself and you lived and you died and you rose again 
so that those who have been humbled will be raised up, so that the last will become first, so that those who were dead would now have life. And so as your people who have that life, we ask that you would fill us with hope. As we mourn, as we grieve, as we celebrate, and as we sing, let us do so with hope. Help us to do it, we pray. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.